following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Solus Christus, Christ alone, that Latin phrase. It's my privilege to talk something about that today. Um, as I've been reflecting on the talk and what I might say, I was going to do a, a different kind of talk. Um, I've decided to, to change tact. Um, as I was beginning to think about what text to preach, um, how do we present again in front of us Christ in His magnificence, in His glory, Christ who is over all and in all and is the one by whom all was created, through whom all was created, for whom all was created. I was beginning just to get a bit overwhelmed, to be honest. So I've done something a bit simpler in a way, although we'll test that. Uh, I'm going to go back to the Reformers, back to Martin Luther, one of these key Reformers, to one of the texts that he wrote, and I'm just going to pull some things out of that to remind us, because the Reformation 500 years ago, so celebration, 500 years ago, we're on this door, Martin Luther defaced it, um, put graffiti on it. Uh, we remember this because this is a great recalibration of the faith. Luther didn't want to start a new church. Why would you? There's one church, the Church of Christ Jesus. We are His body of which He's the head. It's a recalibration. And every week as you come here to a service of worship and praise and word and sacrament, it's a recalibration. That's what we're doing every week. Because if you don't mind me saying, we're rather pathetic creatures. We just keep getting turned away to the left or the right to our own thing. So I'm really pleased, Reuben, that you're deciding to do this, this series on the great solas to recalibrate us. And so that's what I'm going to do today. As you might know by now, probably there were five solas, five alones of the Reformation. Now, these weren't actually coined during the Reformation. These, these five slogans, um, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola Deo gloria, um, they weren't used uh, in the own day, in the 1500s, as a way to summarize everything. That, that came later. That was the 20th century. As we look back and say, how do we, how do we package that? But, but that doesn't mean these phrases in, in, um, in themselves weren't used. They were. Reformers picked up on some of them. In fact, Martin Luther, who was just, he was an expert at lots of things. And he, one of the things he was an expert in was publicity, self-publicity, something I'm needing to perhaps learn a bit from him. And so in 1530, he decided that he needed a logo. He needed a brand. Uh, he, he had content, he had stuff, he had a vision statement, you know, but he needed a brand. So he, he got someone to draw up for him a logo, which is this, this Luther's Rose. And he explains for us what it means. He says, first should be a black cross in a heart which retains its natural color so that I myself will be reminded that faith in the crucified saves us. For one who believes from the heart will be justified. Romans 10.10. 10. Such a heart, Luther said, should stand in the middle of a white rose to show that faith gives joy, comfort, and peace. And such a rose should stand in a sky-blue field, symbolizing that such joy in spirit and faith is the beginning of the heavenly future joy, which begins already but is grasped in hope, though not yet realized. And around this field is a golden ring to signify that such bliss in heaven is endless, 
and more precious than all joys and goods, just as gold is the most valuable and precious of all the metals. So, so even though these five solars, as a way to summarize the whole movement, comes later, all the elements are certainly there and were unpacked by each of the reformers, and there were many of them. My job today, I guess, is to just briefly talk about one of those, solas Christus, Christ alone. And I'm going to assume a couple of things, if I might. I'm going to assume that you already know that Christ alone is the one who saves, that Christ alone is the one who creates, that Christ alone is the one who um, not only offers us salvation, but actually saves us and has risen again and reigns and is coming back. I'm going to assume that. And so I want to remind you of that truth you already know. And I want to do that through Luther. And I'll explain a bit more about Luther in a minute because we need a bit of a preamble about him. But first, I want to read a very brief introduction from what is perhaps one of the most profoundly theological books available today. And the introduction to it goes like this. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he's like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. How many of you know this, this book? It's not many. What's wrong with the rest of you? And God put it into words too. He wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. Now, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story, a love story about a prince, a brave prince who leaves his palace, has thrown everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle. A piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And, and suddenly you see this beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but, but wait. Our story starts, we're all good stories start, right at the beginning. Nice, isn't it? It's a children's storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And it's phenomenally profound in its theology. Uh, I wish my, some of my third-year students could uh, grasp the centrality of Christ in Scripture and in life like that little introduction does. Maybe they do, they just can't express it. 
Christ is the key to Scripture. He's the key to history. He's the key to your life and mine. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, every story in the Bible whispers His name. And it's true, I think, that if we are followers of Christ, then our story, your story, your life, and my life should also whisper His name. It should testify to who He is. He's our Savior. He's our mediator. He's our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is our everything. What I want to do in the brief time we have this morning is to talk about Christ alone, solus Christus, particularly around the cross of Christ. And it's fitting given we've taken communion already. And I want to do that around this text. In 1518, so you'll learn more about this next week, I think, 1517, Uh, is what this door represents. A year later, after this monk in a pretty no-name, backwater German university town of Wittenberg nails some protests to a door, but it was just a, uh, it wasn't that big of an event, to be honest. This was their community notice board, really. Nothing huge. Nails it to the the door. He starts to, to protest. He starts to um, say, I don't think things are quite right. The sort of stuff we're doing, the sort of things we're believing is starting to look a lot like Christ isn't everything. It's starting to look a lot like the church is more concerned about her own well-being than she is about who Christ is. The church is more concerned about building up its own riches than it is about spreading the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. The church is more about power and maintaining it and holding it and popularity than it is about seeking and saving the lost, the outcast, the oppressed, the ones on the margins. You now have to be a somebody and have a nice flash hat and a gown to be a Christian in this world. Where in actual fact, that's not what Jesus was about. And so he protests and he says, we should talk about this stuff. And, and some wag grabs that off the door and the printing press has just been invented. And so he starts printing these things and they, they, they fly them all around Europe well, they don't literally fly them, you know, nail them to a donkey and set it loose or whatever. And it just goes viral. And so within a year, this no-name monk, Martin Luther, in a little university town in Germany, becomes the center of the world. It's, it's this massive controversy. Now, Martin Luther is a, a monk in the Catholic Church, and he's the member of an Augustinian order. So that's his family. These are his, his friends. These are the people that, that he associates with. And, and if you know anything about Catholicism, and you'll know that they have these different orders, a little bit like we have different denominations, I guess, or, or different local churches. So his is the Augustinians. After a year, his Augustinian order, uh, now that this guy's famous and in, in great turmoil, they say, Brother Martin, can you come to Heidelberg, the city in Germany, could you come to Heidelberg and could you just explain to us what on earth you're talking about? No recrimination, no trial, you're one of us. Brother, come and just tell us, what are you on about? So he goes and he prints this and it's called the Heidelberg Disputation, the Heidelberg Presentation or Discussion. And it's, it's 28 theses. Uh, that's not uncommon. These are 95 theses. He writes 28 theses and pretty much everything he wrote. He writes a thesis, a statement, a really articulate, 
concise summary, here you go, and then a commentary, and then the next summary, and then a commentary. And so he's got these 28 theses. I'm not going to take you through 28, don't worry. But I want to take you through a few of them because I think it might help us be reminded of what we already know. Christ is central. Christ alone is our saviour. Christ alone is God for us. But it also might recalibrate us a little bit. And as a way to introduce you to this, and it needs a bit of introduction, because we're going back 500 years. It's a different cultural time. It's a different language. It's a different atmosphere. And what Luther does in this Heidelberg disputation, it's brilliant. And he was both brilliant and he was otherwise. But, you know, I'll leave that to others to talk through. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll control myself. Um, I will. Um, he says, in this Heidelberg disputation, he says there are two sorts of Christians. Two sorts. And if he looks at this congregation, he would say we could probably separate with a bit of discussion and find out who is who. There's the Christian who is the, the Christian or the theologian of glory. And then the Christian or the theologian of the cross. Guess which one Luther thinks is right? Not rhetorical. We should be theologians of the cross. But he looks at his church and he says, you're almost all theologians of glory. And so he unpacks, what does this mean to be a theologian or Christian of glory versus one of the cross? Now, these theses, as I get to them, they're going to be unusual, they're going to be challenging, and they're going to be abrasive. I, I did a seminar on this a few years ago, I won't tell you where. I've never had such arguments with Christians before because it's grace alone, it's faith alone, it's Christ alone, and we hate that. We being humans, we hate that. Everything within us hates that because we bring nothing to the table. So let me give you this little introduction to, to these two, theo theology of glory, theology of the cross, and I want to give you just a few of them to unpack this. The most common overarching story we tell about ourselves is what we call the glory story. We come from glory and we are bound for glory. Of course, in between, we seem somehow to have been derailed, whether by design or accident, we don't quite know. But this is only a temporary inconvenience. We are glorious and we will one day be glorious. We currently are not glorious. And this myth is told in countless ways, in countless different ways, by different cultures and societies, but it's the same myth. In Greek philosophy, this is the transmigration of the soul. And so Plato and Aristotle and their teacher Socrates, with some differences, but effectively, this is what they teach. Before you were you, your soul existed as a perfect form glorious somewhere in a perfect form world. And, and one day, at the end, after death, your soul will return to that glorious form. It's just unfortunate that it currently has this physical form you see in front of you. 
Maybe I should just speak for myself. It's just unfortunate that this is, this is the, the, the vessel that it travels in. And so physicality is base. Physicality is low. And, and we're these pathetic creatures who have to find within ourselves this spark of the divine, the spark of goodness, the spark of perfection. And we cultivate that. And we cultivate that in different ways, depending on what tradition, what culture. Some people will sit in caves and pray. Some people will stand on their heads and chant. Some people will do good work. Some people will rape and pillage. Whatever it might be, you fill in how you want to do it. But one day we'll return, this transmigration. But it's not just ancient, it's also modern. This is the glory story, the myth of the exiled soul. After all, the dream of the soul's indestructibility is attractive and comforting. Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is burr an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. So said Longfellow, the poet laureate of American sentimentality. But even in a supposed secular age like ours, this myth is widespread. It's widespread amongst New Age religions and neo-paganism and, I have to say, much of contemporary Western Christianity. Indeed, so seductive has this myth of the exiled soul been that the biblical story itself is taken captive by it. The biblical story of the fall has tended to become a variation of the theme. The unbiblical notion of a fall is already a clue to this. Adam, originally pure in soul, either by nature or by this added gift of grace, is tempted by baser lusts and fell, losing grace and drawing all his progeny with him into a massive perdition. Reparation must be paid, grace restored, purging carried out so that the return to glory is possible. The cross, of course, can be quite neatly assimilated into the story as the reparation that makes the return possible. And there we have a tightly woven theology of glory. And if you're anything like me, you should be thinking, but isn't that the gospel? Isn't, but isn't that, eh? <laughs> the faithful amalgamation of the glory story with the cross story is the hidden presupposition for the deadly combat between this theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Indeed, one of the difficulties in the attempt to set the theology of the cross apart from a theology of glory is that the differences between the two are subtle. And isn't that just like the devil? Lucifer, the deceiver? Obviously, they use much the same language in Christian circles. One purpose of Luther's treatise, this Heidelberg disputation, is to make these differences clear. The theology of the cross arises out of the realization that it is simply disastrous to dissolve the cross into the story of glory. Jesus was crucified outside the camp, not in the temple, as the epistle to the Hebrews tells us. The cross insists on being its own story. It does not allow us to stand by and watch. It does not ask us to probe endlessly for meaning behind or above everything that would finally awaken, enlighten, and attract this exiled, slumbering soul. It challenges that. The cross draws us into itself 
so that we become participants in Christ's story. As Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20, one of the Reformers' favorite texts, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live, and this is how they translate this, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't live by my faithfulness. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Just as Jesus was crucified, so also we are crucified with him. The cross makes us part of his story. The cross becomes our story, and this is what Luther means. The cross alone is our theology. And so the cross and Christ become our story. It presents us with a contrast to this theology of glory. So there's these two stories. Let's unpack this a bit with a number of theses to try and make this clear if I can. So here's Luther, thesis one. This is how he begins to his brothers in the Augustinian order. He says, brothers, the law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance humans on their way to righteousness, but hinders them. You don't know how many arguments I have had with people. I'm a theologian, so it's my stock and trade to argue. So I've asked people this a number of times. If you could obey the Old Testament law of God perfectly, would you be perfect? Crudely put, would you die and go to heaven? Maybe 90 out of 100 Christians I ask say, yes, of course, that's the whole point. I think they're entirely wrong. I think Jesus says they're entirely wrong, and I think Luther says in very German ways, nine! No. <laughs> no. Do you remember the story, and this is the illustration Luther gives, of the rich young ruler? As he was sitting out on the journey, a man ran up to Jesus, knelt beside him, and said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life, eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. So he's testing him. What does he want him to say? I know, and you are God. But he doesn't say that, does he? You know the commandments, says Jesus. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not be a false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth up. Arrogant puff. Looking at him, Jesus had a different reaction to me. Jesus felt love for him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, the rich young ruler was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Here is our theologian of glory, one who wants to do it his way, in his energy, in his power, in his own strength. This is one who thinks the law is there to be slavishly followed as an end in itself. Here is the godly legalist, the optimistic religious person. Here is the glorious fool. And maybe he did honor his mother and father. And maybe he didn't steal. And maybe he didn't be a false witness. Maybe he didn't defraud. Maybe he'd never committed murderer. Maybe I'm talking about you. And if you think that'll get you into heaven, Jesus says, you've got you've got another thing coming. And so Jesus puts his finger where this person feels it most. He's rich, so why don't you sell it? I don't know what he'd ask me, 
Actually, I probably do, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> but you know what he's asking you, what you have to give up, what you're challenged by, where your sense of, of worth is, where your sense of, of, well, you know, in my worst moments, which we think are our best, I'm pretty good at that. And I could give this to the Lord, and he would take that, and he would use it, and he would thank me for the gift I've brought to him. It's not just me that thinks like that, right? That's the theologian of glory. So what are we to say, that the law of God is bad? Well, Luther wants to say good works are useless. He's going to say something else in a minute, but at the moment, he wants to say good works are useless. Galatians 3, 24, 26, he gives an example. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no, long, no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons or children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This term here, tutor, uh, paedagogos, it's not teacher, it's tutor. In the ancient world, this was almost always a man, almost always a slave, and it was their task to conduct a boy, almost always a boy, to and from school and to supervise and direct them in their general conduct. And so here the law, says Luther, is a tutor. It's a way to get to, not the law, but something else. And so then he gives us theses three and four, and these are contrastive. The works of humans versus the works of God. The works of humans always look good and splendid. The works of God always look deformed. The works of humans appear to be good. The works of God appear to be bad. The works of humans are nevertheless deadly. The works of God are nevertheless life-giving. On the surface, it's counterintuitive, right? It just, that seems odd, doesn't it? And this is Luther's point. It is odd because we're sinners, because we're so depraved, because we're so confused, because we're so fallen, we think good is bad and bad is good. And that's what the gospel does. It exposes this. He says, human works in and of themselves look good. And indeed, they give every appearance of being good. But in reality, people, in reality, precisely because of the goodness we attribute to works, they are possibly deadly sins. It is, of course, highly offensive to have our best works judged under the law. And the proof of this thesis from, for Luther comes in Matthew 23, 23, 27. And I'm going to talk about the Pharisees in this text, but, but really I'm thinking about myself. Woe to you, says Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I'm a Baptist. Woe to you, Baptists and independent church members. Woe to you who go to Windsor Park or Shaw Community or Woe to you, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Or, or more strongly, Paul in Galatians 3.10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So let me ask you again, if you could obey the law perfectly for your entire life, crudely put, would you die and go to heaven? No. 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 That's not the standard. 
to be right with God? Is it? Not according to Scripture. Human works outside of grace, outside of faith, outside of Christ, damn us, even though they look good and beautiful. Contrast this with the deformed and apparently bad works of God. What about Isaiah 53 too? He had no form or comeliness. Or 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord humbles and frightens us by means of the law, says Luther, and the sight of our sins in order to bring us to Christ. And when God does that, it looks bad. It looks deformed and his key example here is the cross of Jesus Christ. We hang crosses in our churches, we hang them around our necks, we tattoo them on our bodies, we decorate our books and our houses with them, and brilliant, so we should. But let's never lose sight of the fact of what the cross is. Imagine having an electric chair hanging in your church. Imagine having a gallows behind us. Imagine setting up a guillotine as the symbol of our faith. It's jarring. It's counterintuitive. What do you mean that guillotine's the sign of God's love for us? Do you, do you hear that? So people come in to church, and here's the cross of Christ. Oh, what's that about? Oh, that's where a human was miserably tortured until he died. And, that, and that's good? That's really good, we say. And that's good why? I don't know, but it is. <laughs> We need this story of the cross, which challenges the story of glory. Thesis 21, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls a thing what it actually is. This is what Luther says. This is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. And isn't that the question of our age? Where is God when I suffer. I don't care about your suffering. It's said to do theology post-Holocaust has changed everything. Where is God post-Holocaust? Where is the Christian God? And this is Luther's question here too. Where is God? He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, they prefer works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, they prefer good to evil. These are people whom the apostle calls enemies of the cross of Christ, for they hate the cross and suffering and love works and glory. Thus they call the good of the cross evil and the evil of a good uh, and the evil of a deed good. God can be found only, says Luther, in suffering and the cross, as he has already been said. Therefore the friends of the cross say that the cross is good and works are evil. For through the cross, works are dethroned, and the old Adam, who is especially built up by works, is crucified. It is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by their good works unless they have first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until they know that they are worthless and that their works are not theirs but God's. You see what Luther does here? And he just does this for his whole career. It's not the only way to do theology. It's not the way we normally do it, but once a year or once every 500 years, maybe it's helpful to listen to. We are inveterate theologians of glory. We are tempted. We're bound to be so. We invest all our capital in good works or at least the appearance of such. 
but a theology of the cross is different. It calls a thing what it is. It is able to name sin as sin in all its religious and pseudo-Christian guises. But there has to be some positive, right? So Theses 23, 24, another set of contrasts here. He says again, the law brings the wrath of God. It kills, it curses, it accuses, it judges, it damns everything that is not in Christ. Thesis 24, yet that wisdom is not of itself evil, nor is the law to be evaded, but without the theology of the cross, we misuse the best in the worst way. Thesis 23 announces flatly, in spite of all the glorious hot air, God is not interested in the law. Remember Galatians 3.13, for Christ redeemed you from the law. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law, they're under a curse. Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. Romans 7.10, the very commandment which promised life proved to be the death of me, says Paul. So what on earth was God doing giving us this thing in the first place? Luther says he had to. He had to. Not because God's imprisoned, and that's the only way God can operate, but because that's the sort of people we are. We need to be humbled by the law. We need to be held to a standard. We need to have the spotlight put upon us where we can say and feel, I am not good enough. I am not good enough in myself. I'm not good enough in my works. I'm not good enough. And at that point, what do we do? What is the gospel? Good news. God says, now let's talk. I know you're not good enough because of the four. I know you can't do it in your own strength. This is the good news. In Jesus Christ alone, I've done it all. I've lived for you. I've died for you. I've risen for you. I've worked for you. I've given him blessings that through him he will give that to you. God says to us, I know you can't. That's the point. Now you're ready to receive. But I want to give. You've got nothing to give. What do you mean I've got nothing to give? You've got nothing to give. The first word of the gospel is receive, take, eat, drink, remember what Reuben has done for you. Hey, wait a minute. Um, remember what Martin Luther, no, no. No, remember what Christ has done and continues to do. And it's at that point where again we remind ourselves, it's his body, it's his blood because it's his works and it's his righteousness that we receive. And in Thesis 24, in Christ comes the answer. The theologian of the cross knows that Christ is the end of the law. Wisdom, free will, good works in the law, these are good gifts from God, but only when we understand our place. And then he starts to bring this home. Thesis 26, he says, the law says, do this and it is never done. Have you felt that? After 52 weeks of churches, Sunday churches, every week, this week it might be three things. Next week is another four. The week after it's another five. I did one that week. I did two that week. That was pretty good. Didn't do any that week. So I'm minus eight by week four. I get to 52 weeks. I'm just miserably depressed. Don't worry. First sermon back, New Year. What is it? New Year's resolutions. The slate's wiped clean. Let's start again. And we get this moralistic treadmill again. Not at this church, I know that, but other churches, right? 
And, and that's what the law does. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this. Not because it's bad. It's all good, but we can't do it. Except grace says believe in this and everything is already done. Believe in this. Don't believe in yourself, theology of glory. Don't believe in your goodness, theology of glory. Don't believe in your ability to give God anything, theology of glory. Believe that He's created you, that He loves you, that there's been this drastic catastrophe we call the fall, where we, humans, have decided to walk away from God, to indulge in things that we think are bright and sparkly and wonderful. It's because of that that we're deformed. And then in Christ, God says, I know you can't come back. I know you can't be righteous. I know you can't do good works. I know you can't get into heaven, crudely put. So I will make a way for you. I will send my only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Thesis 28. The last of the theses, Luther concludes, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Oh. Do you have to be good enough for God to love you? That's what the church in Luther's day was teaching. You have to be good enough before he will love you. You have to do good works for him to accept you. You have to be righteous before he will say, you are my child. And who can do that except the great pretender? And who are the greatest pretenders but church folk? I'm myself included, aren't we? But the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. So God creates you, and he gifts you, and he gives you Christ. And as we respond by grace through faith, then Christ's life becomes our life. What Sally Lloyd-Jones at the beginning in this very simple Jesus Storybook Bible is talking about is some of the most profound theology we have. It's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ alone. And when you find yourself in Christ, when you, when you find yourself in love with Him, when you find yourself wanting to follow Him, having to, I don't know, that's weird, wanting to follow Him, wanting to not be a sinner, thinking that every time you sin and you continue to do it, it's disgusting, it's horrible, and you just want to stop it. Not because people are telling you, not because the law is telling you. I couldn't care less about the law. I'm not a Jew. I'm not under the law. I don't care about the law as law. None of us should. I care about Christ. And when we find ourselves in Christ, then he says, now it's possible to not steal. Now it's possible to honor your mother and father. Now it's possible to not commit adultery. Now it's possible to, to live in this perfect law. But it's not because it's law, it's because it's grace. It's because Christ is already obedient and faithful. As, as, he, as he is risen again on that third day, 40 days later, he ascends to the throne of the Father. And what's the first thing he does? He sits down and he sends the Holy Spirit to us. Not just so we can have a party. Not just so we can be self-indulgent partiers in a church service. But so that we can show the world a theology of the cross. 
because they're living theologies of glory. And we've got the highest rates of teen suicide, haven't we? Because they're hopeless. Our young people have no hope. We've got high rates of depression in the Western world. We're narcissists. We're turned in on themselves. We're unhappy. Not everyone. I know some people are. But... And this is the good news. This is the start of where the gospel comes. Anything you try to do in your own strength is not good enough. But in Christ, it's already done. God, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. One of my favorite texts in all of Scripture and one of the things I look forward to because I can't, almost can't believe it's true is that on that last day, either when Christ comes again or I die, whichever comes first, I'll stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ as a sinner. I mean, I know myself better than anybody. I don't deserve to be there. And what will I hear? What will you hear? If you're found in Christ Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. But, <laughs> me? Yeah, because you're found in Christ Jesus. And here again, the love of God doesn't find in me perfection. The love of God doesn't find in me goodness. The love of God doesn't find in me anything that God would think, think desirable but it creates that which is pleasing to it. I dare you to find anything like that in any other religion, any other worldview. This is phenomenal. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones said, it's true. I have to finish. Let me read Colossians 1, 15 to 23 as a form of affirmation for us of solus Christus Christ alone. The sum is the image of the invisible God. He alone is the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation. In him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, the first resurrected, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth, with the things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once we were alienated from God. We were enemies. But now God has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in his sight without blemish or accusation. If, if you continue in your faith, which is entirely by grace, Established and firm, do not move from that hope held out in the gospel. This is the good news you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul or Mike or whoever it might be, have become a servant. My goal this morning was to remind and recalibrate. It's Christ. It's Christ alone. It's always Christ and Christ alone. 
The love of God does not find goodness. The love of God does not find you acceptable. The love of God does not demand that you become, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And that's why our highest privilege is to be children of God, sons and daughters, heirs and co-heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.